Well, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles back to the Gospel of John, where we're going to start by reading the first 15 verses of the third chapter. And I'd like to pray before we begin today. I'm so grateful to have Phil and Rita with us and just to hear about that ministry. I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me to hear uh, the ministry that they have. And I'd like to pray for them as well as just thinking of our our own personal lives, the life of our church, to be able to to be about a salt and light for our world. Uh, Father, we come to you today uh, because Jesus died for our sins, and we are able to enter into this relationship. Thank you for cleansing us and making us white. Thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit, and he empowers us to obey the commands, and they are not burdensome, but they are delight to walk in. Uh, thank you for the, the victory over sin that we have. But if we're honest, even this week, maybe even this morning, we can reflect on times where we failed and we have sinned. And so we come and we ask for forgiveness. And thank you for not only saving us with this grace, but then helping us to grow in this grace as well. I thank you that we can come and, and gather with a family to know that we're not, we're not in this by ourselves. We have people that love us and care for us, and we love them and care for them, and we want to see them grow in their character, in their understanding and application of the teachings of the Scriptures. And Lord, I thank you for the, the delight you have given to us to not just hold this message for ourselves, but we've been called to be salt That is, we are to be distinguishable between our culture. They ought to see our lives, the way we talk, the way we address others, the way we live our lives, and they are to be different. But we are also to be light that proclaims the the forgiveness that we have found. And what, what, what a great calling that each of us have on our lives that are saved to be able to go out and proclaim this. Now, you've put this on and Phil and Rita's heart to, be, to do it this particular way with food and, and prayer and the gospel. We pray your blessing over them, that this would expand and grow, and people would be reached with the good news, the hope that can be found in Jesus, and that crisis that they're going through are seen as an opportunity for them to cry out, to be saved from their sins, and find the joy of walking with you. And then we look at our own lives, we look at the life of our church and say, help us to find the ministry you have for us. Uh, Perhaps it's with Crisis Cafe, but maybe it's right there in our neighborhood. Maybe it's right there on the floor of the apartment that we live. Maybe it's on the, with the parents of my, our kids' sports teams or or dance or, or gymnastics or whatever. Help us to find where you would have us to, to pour into, to have the, the privilege of sharing the good news with others. And now as we turn to the scriptures, Lord, I thank you for this, this time to be able to read them and teach on the born-again life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, and I'm going to be reading the first 15 verses, so follow along with me. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and, do, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." And as Moses lifted up in the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I want to begin this, this morning's message in a unique way. If you have your outline, you'll see in the introduction that there is an epitaph. That is the gravestone of a pastor by the name of John Berridge. He pastored in England. Back in the 1700s, they called the role of pastor a vicar. I want us to read what it says there on his tombstone. It says this, Here lie the remains of John Berridge, late vicar or or late pastor of Everton, and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running his errands, many years was called up to wait on him above. Now listen to this. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716, remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730, lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754, admitted to Everton Church or or Everton Vicarage, 1755, fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756, fell asleep in Christ, January 22nd, 1793. Now, friends, I would ask you a question. At what point did Pastor John Berridge, what year did he become a Christian? Yes. Here was a man that was brought up in a very good family, moral family. He was educated at Cambridge University. He loved the things of God. He even was a pastor. And if you would have asked him, what are you trusting in to save you from your sins? He would have said faith, but he also would have said works. Here he was, a Bible school graduate, 
and even a pastor. But he was not saved. He was not saved until 1756. Now, before there was John Berridge, there was a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. A deeply moral and religious man. Let's look at what it says here in John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The first thing we see is his name is Nicodemus. The word Nicodemus means victor over people. I I take that to mean that this was a very high achiever. He was elite, maybe at anything that he tried. It says here that he was a Pharisee. Now, in our church, we probably look down upon a man such as that because we know a lot about the Pharisees over the ministry of Jesus. But let's just back up. And before you look down upon them, the word Pharisee means separated ones. These were people that believed that the Scriptures were inspired by God. They not only believed that, but they believed that the Word of God should be obeyed. In fact, they studied it to the point of discerning that there were 613 laws in the Old Testament, 248 that they were to do, 365 that they were not to do. And when one wanted to become a Pharisee, according to William Barclay, a commentator, they would offer a vow with three witnesses to say, I am going to obey all the commandments. And, and because they feared God and feared his words so much, they actually built safeguards into obeying the law. Now, we like safeguards, do we not? Um, pastor Zach and I had the privilege of just going away for a few days this week to take in a pastor's conference. And while there, we heard from Dennis Rainey. And Dennis Rainey spoke about the value of safeguards in your marriage. And so Dennis Rainey said, Family Life Today, he said, listen, I will never ride in a vehicle with just me and another woman. I've got a safeguard built in my life. I'll never counsel in a room with me and a woman with a door shut. I always will have the door open. I have a safeguard in my life. In fact, I'll never email another woman back and forth without carbon copying my wife. I have safeguards built in my life. Well, the Pharisees had safeguards built on their life as well. They said, we do not want to disobey God's law, so let's, let's move back a little bit from that law so we don't even come close to violating it. So they have a book called the Mishnah, which would, which would chronicle, this is what the law says, but let's provide some protection, some safeguards from this. Many of you know this. When it comes to the law of honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy, they would make it very clear. Well, let's not even come close to that. So let's, let's, let's see what it actually how we should honor that commandment. So, for example, a woman could tie a knot on her article of clothing, maybe her blouse or her dress, but a man could not tie a knot on a rope to a pail that would go down into a well. Why? Because that would be work. A person could drink uh, uh, some milk, but one gulp at a time. But if they had more than one gulp, well, then that would be a violation of the Sabbath, of breaking the Sabbath. So this is who Nicodemus is. He values the Scriptures. Not only values them, but is all about trying to obey them. 
Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us he's not only a Pharisee, but he is also a ruler of the Jews. A historian named Josephus, who we often quote, has said at the first century there are around 6,000 Pharisees. The ruling council was called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 members. So if you do the math, we could say that Nicodemus was in the top 11, 12% of the Pharisees. He was in this ruler class that would have been the equivalent to our U.S. Supreme Court or Senate. I think we can conclude that he was looked up to. He was respected among his peers. Let me give you something else that it says about him. In chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus responded to him and he said, Are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the teacher of Israel? I take that definite article, the word the there, to be enlightening. That Nicodemus was such a great teacher that he was called upon for authoritative issues. When they needed someone to help teach the scriptures, Nicodemus would have been that guy. And so there we have a little background of who Nicodemus is. And then it says in verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night, presumably to, to visit with Jesus when there was no crowds. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So it must not have been that Nicodemus was the only Pharisee or the only member of the Sanhedrin that was interested in Jesus. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, as we began our study in the Gospel of John a few weeks ago, we learned in John 1 that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also saw in John chapter 2 that he performs signs. And these signs point that he is the Son of God, the promised one, the Savior. And so Nicodemus is picking up on this. We have observed these signs, and they prove that you have come from God. Now, if you were beginning a church, if you were beginning a ministry, if you were beginning some sort of a campaign, I'm just putting my, my worldly thinking on right now, and I would say Nicodemus is a guy that you would want to have him in your ministry, to have him in your church, to have him a part of your campaign would add instant credibility. But Jesus doesn't think like I do. Listen to what it says there in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He is, in effect saying to Nicodemus, listen, you are a deeply moral person. No one can deny that you are religious. You read and attempt to obey all the scriptures. You are respected and sought after by your fellow man. But listen, Nick, you are lost. Let me just give you a contemporary equivalent to this, okay? Let's imagine that there is a child that is born into a very godly family. And this child is taught to read by the very Word of God. And by five, six years old, they have a hundred verses committed to memory. 
Their family is so faithful to the local church that this child is brought up in Sunday school and Awana and Vacation Bible School. And when of age, they're there for youth group. They're there for summer camp, winter camp, mission camp, leader camp, anything they can, all right? They're homeschooled under the most sound teaching. Or they go to a Christian school of which there's no contamination from the world, right? They graduate high school. They go to the most conservative, sound Bible school there is in their area. And there they receive more sound teaching. In fact, the faculty of this Christian school looks upon this person, this man, and says, we, we see something in you, and we, we desire to have you around more beyond graduation. We would like you to become a professor of this school. And while this person is serving as professor, he's serving at a local church, and he happens to be an elder of that church. That's Nicodemus. And Jesus would say to that man, or that woman, as he would to Nicodemus, and I would say to each of you here this morning, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. For some, I hope that brings comfort <laughs> to realize that I'm not very religious. I, I have lived a life that's not very good or very moral. But listen, all of us, all of us, church family, need to be born again. Verse 4 says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a great question. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless he is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 5 is a challenging verse for us to understand. We have to remember as we read this, that he is speaking to a first-century Jew. And he would have said words that he would have understood. This Nicodemus had the Old Testament scriptures. And so whatever Jesus was sharing with this man, it must have been something that he could connect back to in the scriptures. I think that's why most Bible teachers will link that verse 5 back to Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27. And that when it speaks about being born of water, it's speaking about a cleansing, a cleaning. Listen to what the, the prophet of Ezekiel said. I will spring clean water on you. Rather, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This isn't the only time in the Gospel of John that we have seen Jesus speak about being born a second time. Do you remember in John 1? Verses 12 through 13, it said there, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That is to be born again, is to be washed, cleansed. It means to be born a second time of God. 
It means to receive a new heart, a new life. Nicodemus might have said, I thought I was good there. I was born a Jew. And that must mean that I've qualified. I was already born once, and I was born once in the right way. Only the ones that are really, really bad go to hell, right? But Jesus was saying, you don't nearly need to cleanse yourself. You need to be made brand new. And you can only do that when you are born again. I think as we look at this passage, there are three illustrations of what the word that we call salvation. Now, salvation is a church word that we use. Don't be intimidated by it. It just means to be delivered from sin or delivered from the consequences of sin. There are three illustrations I think we see here. The first is this. Salvation is like being born a second time. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Um, my wife told me that young Jacinda, just this past week, a, a couple of days ago, gave birth to her little boy. You know Jacinda, Seth, and they have a little boy named Dakota. Now Dakota has a little, a little brother. And so the question is, how is a natural birth similar to a spiritual birth? Okay, let me give you five different ways that the spiritual birth is similar to a natural birth. You see them in your outline. The first is this. It's humbling. A child can claim no credit for their birth. A father and mother came together to conceive a child. The mother gave birth to the child. The child had nothing to do with that birth. In the same way, the spiritual birth is entirely a work of God. R.C. Sproul said it this way, the words born-again Christian is redundant because to be a Christian, you have to be born again. It's like saying he is an unmarried bachelor or a three-sided triangle. If you are a Christian then you have been born again. And you might feel like you've had a good week and you're patting yourself on the back because you've uh, exercised a lot of the spiritual disciplines this week. And I say praise the Lord. May God work grace in your life. But I'm just here to tell you that all of us, all of us can take no credit for being born again. It is entirely a work of God. The second way in which spiritual birth and natural birth is similar is pain. The one who gave birth experienced pain than joy. Now, during the first century, they didn't know anything about epidurals, okay? So childbirth was synonymous with intense pain. I remember the, the first time, I didn't ask for permission, Melody, but I, the first time that uh, Melody gave birth uh, to our, our oldest boy, um, she's like, hey, who needs an epidural? I, I got this. You know, good enough for Mary, the mother of Jesus, good enough for me. Well, that is the only baby that has been born natural uh, that she gave birth to because I've been told it's intensely painful. 
was so is having mankind's sin put upon them on the cross. So is having nails driven in your hands and your feet. In the same way that birth leads to pain and then joy in a natural birth, it's the same in the spiritual birth as well. The third similarity is that of a birthday. There was a day that marks new birth. I've heard this, and I imagine you have heard it as well, where someone will come up to you and says, I have always believed, I have always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Because when you're born in this world, you have a birthday. And you might not remember, it might have been a season where God was working in your life, but there was a day, if you're born again, that marks new birth. The fourth similarity is that of identity. My heavenly Father defines who I am. In the Western world, we define who we are by what we do. On Friday night, I'm at a a, a football practice, and one of the dads says, Hey, Chad, what do you do? How, how are you defined? But in the non-Western culture, we're defined by our family. When we go to Neomun there in Senegal, they don't ask us, what do we do? They ask us about our family name, which, which seems strange to me because I'm in this culture, right? Why would you want to know my last name with a German heritage there on this small little island in, in Senegal, Africa? But that's how people are defined. And when you are born again, I got great news for you. Your father defines you. And what he says about you is who you actually are. The fifth similarity, and this is going to need some explanation, and that is amplified senses. That is, we are more perceptive when born. As a child, I can remember my dad and and stepmom, they were going to have a baby. And when my stepmom had this big belly, my my dad and stepmom would play music. They would read the Bible and they'd say, you know what, that child is going to get used to hearing the word of God, going to get used to my voice. And, and, And there's probably truth to that. But it's certainly in a muddled sound, right? And when that little boy came out of the womb, they'd hear that voice, They'd hear that music, and it was in much clearer tones. And I think the same is said, that when we are born again, the things that were only muddled to us become clear. Let me just give you an illustration. This past week, I heard of a man that was born in a a great family, a moral family. He, He even had a desire to go to Bible school. He thought, someday I want to be a pastor. He was lost. He wasn't even a Christian. He actually went to that Bible school and attended some classes, and then he dropped out. In God's providence, he went into the military. And while in the military, he was rubbing up shoulders against a couple of different people and made aware of his sin. And the godly gospel-preaching chaplain began to share the gospel with him. And you know what happened? He was gloriously born again. And he's like, I don't think I've ever heard the gospel before. The chaplain's like, you probably have. It's just that your eyes weren't open to it yet. He said, you know, I went to a Bible school. I read all these books and I never read the gospel once. I remember reading a commentary by Martin Luther on the book of Galatians. 
And the chaplain thought to himself, you know what you ought to do is go back and read that commentary again. And he went back to that commentary and he said on every page, on every page, he saw the gospel there. But because he was born again, his senses were now alive. I mean, listen, many of you have been brought up in church. You've heard this, how great thou art. You've heard these great hymns of the faith before. And then later in life, you become born again. And it's more than a melody. It's more than a harmony. It's truth to you. And your senses are awakened to it. And it means everything to you. I can remember, I wasn't a Christian. My dad became a Christian later in life. And, and I would visit him and he would listen to this music. And it was pleasant to the sound, but I didn't really know what the words were. And then years later, I was born again. And I could go back and I could listen to the same songs. I'm telling you, they were very meaningful to me. Why? Because now I was born again. I can see flowers in the ditch on a highway. I can see birds up in trees and and I can see those things. At one time, they were just background. But now you can say, you know, God takes care of these lilies. He takes care of these birds. And whatever I'm going through right now, he's going to take care of. We can look at art in in an art museum and say, wow, this is wonderful if I I understand it. but, But as I look at this, this reminds me of how creative our great God is. You can go to a history exhibit and you see all these events of history and you see the providence of God. Why? Because now you are born again. So the first illustration I think we see here is that of being born a second time. Let's look at a second one, and that is salvation is like wind that blows in change. Look at me at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but in a matter of months, you're going to be hearing some wind howling outside your window, aren't you? And you might get up and you might say, where's that noise coming from? I don't see anything. But wind has effect. Wind blows in change. And so what Jesus is saying here, one, you must be born again, but those who are born again see change in their life. There are times, are there not, in the summer months where we wake up, we go out to our backyard, our yard, or wherever we live, and we see that branches are down. And we're like, how in the world did those branches get there? And we know the answer, right? The wind has blown in change and has knocked down those branches. As a young Christian, I began attending my first church there in my college town of Menominee, Wisconsin. And I was invited with the pastor and and this Christmas party for something I had never heard of before. It was called a white elephant gift exchange. That was the first time I was exposed to such a thing. And, And the pastor had put out a few books there. And I'm telling you, I was new. The only thing I knew about Christianity was there was a Bible And then I realized, you mean other people have written books about this stuff? And one of those books was called Born Again by Chuck Colson. Do you know Chuck Colson? 
He used to work with President Nixon. He was called one of the hatchet men. He was an attorney. He went down with President Nixon's scandal, the Watergate scandal, and he was imprisoned in a federal prison there. And in that process, I think even before he went to jail, God did a magnificent work in his life, and he was born again. And his life was radically changed. There in the jail, he says, you know what? We need a prison ministry. And he started a prison ministry. And as the years advanced, he said, you know what? We need to really focus on a biblical worldview. And God used Chuck Olson to really be a proponent of, of establishing a biblical worldview. Even recently, I was listening to the radio and I heard Breakpoint by Chuck Olson. That is all speaking of a changed life. And I just want to say this to you before I move on. Don't underestimate the power of being born again. Chuck Olson's life was radically changed. Loved one, the same power that transformed his life is the same power that transformed Peter and Paul's life is the same power that can transform your life. Don't for a moment hinder the power of God. Allow it to be unleashed in your life. Well, so far we've looked at two illustrations of salvation. Salvation just means being delivered from sin, being delivered from sin's effects. And you might be thinking passively for a moment, well, it sounds like salvation is just something that God does entirely. And so why don't I just kind of go on and live my life as I want, and I'll find out in the end if I'm one of the chosen ones. The first 15 verses of John 3 will not allow you to have that mindset. Look at what it says here with the third illustration of salvation. And that is salvation is like looking to a bronze serpent to be saved from death. Verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, that's not going to make any sense to us unless we read some verses in the book of Numbers. So keep your finger here, please. And let's just go to the book of Numbers. And I'm going to read a few verses there in Numbers chapter 21 of this story of Moses. Moses is is leading the people. And as we see in this story, these people are just like you and I. There's continual rebellion that, that bubbles up from them. And in Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, 
he will look to the bronze serpent and live. What we see in this story is the hardness of hearts of the Israelites had compelled them to complain about God's providing for them. In their complaint, God brought judgment through some snakes. And these snakes bit them, and they began to die. And so God developed a plan that says, here's what we're going to do. This seems strange, doesn't it? We're going to have this fiery serpent. I want you to put it up, made of bronze, put it up on a pole. And for all those people who look to it, who place their faith in it, they will not die, but they will be spared from death. Now, why did that event take place? I think you know, don't you? It's a great picture of sin and the poison that it injects our lives and that we will die in our sin. But Jesus has come not to go up onto a pole, but to go to the cross. And then if we will look, look to the eyes of faith, he will save us from sin and sin's effects on our life and in eternity. I don't think this could be illustrated any better than in the life of Charles Spurgeon, a story that I love to tell, and I've understood that he told it some 280 times in his sermon. It's a story of how he became a Christian. He was a 15-year-old boy. It was January 6th of 1850, and there was a blizzard that was blowing through the England countryside or the the surrounding area. And little Charles said, I want to go to church today, but he couldn't find or, or wasn't able to go to his local church. So he stumbled into a primitive Methodist chapel where there was about 12 to 15 people there that day. Because of the snow, the preacher wasn't there. So this ordinary man got up. Because he wasn't a normal preacher, all he did was he just took one verse And he just spoke about that one verse. And that verse was Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says, Look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there was no one else. This is what Spurgeon said. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, and there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then, stopping... He pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, That young man there, he looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist could, Look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now I can tell you how it was, but but I sooner saw whom I was to believe and also understand that it was to believe, and I did not believe, and I did believe in that one moment. And as snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found, for I was as white as the driven snow through the grace of God. And this is the application today, loved ones, is to look is to look, look upon Jesus that you might be born again. Are you born again? You must be born again 
to enter the kingdom of God. Look to him to save you from your sins. Let us pray as the music team comes that this would be more than just an illustration of salvation, but you would have experienced it and you are living it today. The Father, as we close this passage this morning, I thank you for these powerful words that salvation is like being born a second time, that salvation brings wind of change in our life, and we could be saved if we look, look to Jesus to save us from our sins. Friend, if you've never done that before, there's no magical prayer or formula to do that. It's really between you and God to be able to say something to the effect of, God, I realize I have sinned and you are holy and that I stand guilty, condemned before you like poison that's been injected in my vein. This is the effect of sin and it will lead to death. And I understand that I am to look to Jesus. He is my only hope on my epitaph May it say that I resolved to follow Jesus and Jesus alone to save me. Place your faith in him. Turn from your sins. Receive this new life in Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. It's it's the anthem of the church to proclaim that you must be born again. God, you are still doing this work today. I would pray that you would do it again on this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.